Russian trolls spread vaccine misinformation online, disaster management lessons learned from Hurricane Sandy, and how to secure the Internet of Things. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. According to the American Journal of Public Health, Russian trolls and Twitter bots have been spreading anti-vaccine misinformation which could lead to lower vaccination rates and further contribute to a rise in mass outbreaks of measles, mumps and rubella among children, among other viral infections. Here's ISMG's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matt Schwartz, with more. As public health alerts go, you might not expect to hear a warning that Russian trolls and automated bots have been spreading polarized and anti-vaccine misinformation via social media. These campaigns appear to be just one more example of how U.S. adversaries have been trying to amplify existing divisions in American society for their own strategic benefit. In this case, the culprit appears to be Russia, according to a team of researchers from George Washington and Johns Hopkins universities. Information warfare experts say that these Kremlin-run efforts are well-known and well-honed. In fact, they're often referred to as 4D campaigns for dismiss, distort, distract, and dismay. Beyond the geopolitical implications of these efforts, however, public health experts say that the spread of vaccine misinformation, including erroneous claims of links between vaccines and autism, which have long been disproven, can also have very real health consequences. Already this year, the U.S. has seen measles outbreaks in California, Minnesota, and Texas. One worry is that finding numerous tweets that suggests that there is a link between vaccines and autism, for example, might lead fewer parents to vaccinate their children, especially against measles, mumps, and rubella. This could further contribute to the rise that's been seen in mass outbreaks of these viral infections. Researchers call the strategy of flooding social media with divisive messages using bots and trolls amplification. Amplification seeks to create impressions of false equivalence or consensus. The strategy seems to be increasingly used. Last week, a U.S. jury returned a guilty verdict against Paul Manafort, U.S. President Donald Trump's former campaign chairman. Manafort was convicted of eight counts of bank and tax fraud charges. Almost immediately after the verdict was announced, an army of suspected Kremlin Twitter accounts began flooding Twitter with links to stories about Molly Tibbetts, a 20-year-old university student who disappeared last month while jogging near her home in Iowa, and who's become a rallying point for right-leaning politicians pushing more restrictive immigration policies. The intention in this case appeared to be to try and distract from the Manafort verdict. But in the case of vaccine misinformation, the results can be more than distracting, especially if it leads to lower vaccination rates. In the U.S., 18 states allow parents to opt out of vaccinating their children for non-medical reasons. But the consequences of doing so can be severe. The Centers for Disease Control says measles or resulting complications will kill four out of every 1,000 people who get infected. Furthermore, it stresses, vaccines reduce the likelihood of infection. The problem is not just limited to the U.S., The World Health Organization warns that it's seen a dramatic increase in measles in Europe. 
jumping from 5,300 cases in 2016 to 24,000 cases in 2017 to 41,000 cases in the first eight months of 2018, with those cases leading to 37 deaths. What can be done to stop the spread of misinformation online, be it about vaccines or political candidates, as Russia has been accused of doing during the 2016 U.S. presidential election? Facebook, Twitter, and Google in recent weeks have been moving to more quickly suspend inauthentic accounts, or accounts that appear to be tied to nation-states' propaganda or influence operations. In the past week, all said they've removed content tied to both the Russian and Iranian governments as part of separate influence operations. But it's not clear if simply suspending these accounts will be enough to counter the influence they may have had. Especially when it comes to vaccine misinformation, much more might need to be done to properly safeguard public health. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. At the recent ISMG Security Summit in New York, I had the opportunity to discuss lessons learned in disaster management with Tonguch Yaman. Tonguch currently serves as the Chief Information Officer of SOMOS, a network of New York City physicians, specialists, community-based organizations, and other providers. But prior to this, he served as the Deputy CIO of Bellevue Hospital, the largest public hospital in New York City, and was there when Hurricane Sandy hit in 2012. Here's Tonguch on how the hospital managed the unimaginable and lessons learned from this for today's security practitioners. Uh, Bellevue Hospital uh, has, has been, you know, uh, the longest open hospital in the United States, has, has been around close to 280 years, yep. and uh, is the Trauma One Center in New York City, so it's one of the most important hospitals in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the president would land in, into the city or uh, state dignitaries, this is the hospital that would uh, take uh, care of the, any uh, unfortunate event, uh, should that happen. So Bellevue is at a very high-risk location, yeah. and uh, this, uh, the leadership at Bellevue uh, consistently trained for the worst-case incidents. Uh, this could be, like I said, a president's uh, mishap. It could be uh, Ebola uh, that mm. happens. It could be um, a building that just is torn down through right. fire or gang shooting. All of these things are Bellevue's, you know, right. uh, specialty. And, and to be prepared for this, what the leadership does is establish a command center. And, and we do dry runs uh, every week, every second week. The leadership comes together. Books are opened. Vests are put. Our roles and responsibilities have defined. And this dry run keeps us alert yeah. all the time. There's enough events that happen in New York City for us to not, not, not to yeah. try it too hard. In fact, the funniest event was for Ebola, we, used, we prepared for three months. All the rooms were readied, the staff was readied, but uh, what happened was one morning we were going to do an almost real run, like not tell everybody that this is the dry run. We're going to tell them there's a person under investigation coming to the hospital. Guess what? A real person came. And we were so confused. Is this a dry run? Is this the real run? <laughs> Didn't matter. You just do your best. Just and do your job. You just, yeah. Yeah, the relationships count the most. That's what mm. we discussed today in the panel. Uh, what dry runs do is not necessarily prepare you for what's going to happen. Mm. Nobody knew Hurricane Sandy was going to shut down the hospital for three months. What we knew was the, the 
the chief of the hospital was sitting at the top of the table, the facilities person was sitting right to him, and then the HR was sitting left to him, and we all had to make decisions together. And that's the teamwork that brings the dr yeah. dry top. Uh, uh, and, and just to recap what you, you got, I think you said it was 700 people evacuated from there? That was a decision that we had to make. Yeah. Uh, after Hurricane Sandy uh, flooded the hospital, every plan that was previously done, such as submarine doors for our pumps that would pump diesel up to the 13th floor, they just got flooded. Yeah. So the hospital had to be shut down and 700 people that were left uh, without power over the next two, three hours had to be evacuated. That was the worst decision our CEO had to make. But once the decision was made, uh, uh, reserves, uh, army reserves came in, uh, 400 of them. Uh, we pulled the patients one at a time with no elevators down the wow. stairs. And there, the best part was we were able to print their electronic medical records on paper from in the hospital with the battery-powered computers and uh, printers and sent them on am in ambulances with their records without losing one patient and one patient record. That is fantastic. So what, what would you say were the key lessons from that that are applicable to yourself and other security practitioners today? For every security practitioner, keep on planning for the scenarios that you can know about that will get you ready for the ones that you don't know about. Build the relationships. Pull in the people that are leading your organization to make them aware of what are the known risks so that they can also be ready for the unknown risks. Finally, I got to speak with Al Pascal, SVP Research and Head of Fraud and Security at Javelin Strategy and Research. Al and his team have just released a new report on securing the Internet of Things, and I asked him what steps should be taken to mitigate risk. Here's Al. I think there, there are things there are things you could do, right? Um, you want to consider the whole life cycle of the device. So I think sometimes we get caught um, in this position where you know, there's one aspect or another that we latch onto, like user enrollment, because we don't want another Apple Pay issue. But then we forget about the other aspects of it, right? The authentication of the user, you know, securing the data and transmission and storage, or even decommissioning the device. Missing any of these aspects creates these, you know, unnecessary fraud and security risks. So you got to consider that entire life cycle of the device. It's a, it's a wonderful way to make sure that you are protected from end to end. Um, but then that brings you to things like using strong authentication, right? Um, you know, having good identity proofing processes in place when uh, that user is being enrolled. Uh, make sure you're using roots of trust. You know, is there a, an ID bound to that device or part of that device, you know, that you could leverage to make sure those credentials are going to the right place? Um, you know, again, secure transmission and storage using tokenization, encryption, and uh, to decommissioning uh, the um, this is a lot like with uh, with mobile phones. We had this yeah. huge problem with mobile phones where people were recycling or you know getting rid of their phones every 12 months, but banks weren't, you know, uh, basically decommissioning the devices. And then when they saw the device later on with a new customer, it created all kinds of problems when you're trying to assess the risk. Now imagine hundreds of millions or billions of IoT devices, and banks aren't managing for decommissioning. Yeah. That would just wreak havoc, right? When you're trying to establish you know the risk of fraud or pretty much anything else. I mean, I'm just looking through the, the, the appendix of the report where you've got a, a breakdown of the, the millions of Internet of Things devices owned in the U.S. It's, it's kind of staggering that we're already looking at, the, you know, 12.4 million doorbells with cameras, you know, <laughs> or, for example, or, you know, 16 million connected washing machines. It's, it's you know, it's, it's pretty mind boggling just the scale of this already. Yeah, yeah, and we're still finding all kinds of security issues with 
you know, the devices that we've been paying attention to for years, yeah. right? To our laptops, our desktop servers, and you know, smartphones. And this is all new ground for criminals, whether it's you know getting access to that data or you know somehow compromising those devices to you know, empty bank accounts. It's a whole new world. Yeah, it's you know, what's the what's the phrase? Nobody knows uh, you're a refrigerator pretending to be a dog on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time. Thank you.